Today we come to the fourth noble truth on the Eightfold, which is the Eightfold Path. Uh, and so on our intensive journey, we've understood the first truth realized by the noble ones, the truth of dukkha. Birth is stressful, death is stressful, old age is stressful, sickness is stressful. Having to be what one with what one does not love is stressful. Having to be apart from what one does love is stressful. So we get that, even though sometimes we try to avoid knowing that. We deny it to ourselves, we distract ourselves to forget about it. We get busy to escape it. And it's not only our individual issue. Our collective denial has allowed systems and structures of oppression of people of color that we simply have not been willing to see. So we've recognized the causes and conditions for dukkha, maybe many, and they may be complex, depending on our conditioning and our habits. The Buddha did not teach a linear causal model, but instead the flowing together of causes and conditions that support the arising, maintaining, decline, and disappearance of phenomena, beings, processes. Sometimes this noble truth has been presented as though the Buddha taught that all desire is wrong or that desire causes suffering. However, the Buddha was clear that there are desires which are wholesome and appropriate. For example, our desire for the spiritual path. These desires do not create stress or pain. So we've tried to investigate the craving or longing that is a cause and condition for dukkha and considered how to abandon it. This we found quite difficult to do because of our constant seeking of sense pleasures, existence or identity, and non-existence or disappearance. We've heard about the possibility of cessation of dukkha, and that is truly good news. We heard that the task for this third noble truth is to realize it. As we go through life, if we could somehow release ourselves from the painful quality of the experiences of birth and death, sickness, old age, having to be with what we do not love, having to be apart from what we love, and not getting what we want, our lives would be joyful and free. We explored that a bit last night with Lori, reflecting on a time when we abandoned craving. But what we're lacking is a method or a set of practices that can actually lead to the cessation of dukkha. We recall that the Buddha sometimes named ignorance as the condition for dukkha and at other times craving. As ignorance leads to craving, they both end up in the same place, the painfulness of our experience, dukkha. This the Buddha explained through the 12-fold chain of dependent origination in which ignorance and craving both make prominent appearances as links in the chain of creation of suffering, links that can be broken. Once broken, the whole mass of suffering ceases immediately. Some folks spoke about that experience last night. The Buddha described that cessation, that cessation with the metaphor of a candle being extinguished 
or a fire going out when the fuel is exhausted. He called it remainderless, without any residue or trace. Nothing whatsoever remains of it. So, how exactly can we experience this cessation, this freedom from dukkha? There is a way, the Buddha taught. Maga in Pali, Marga in Sanskrit, the way to the end of dukkha. Marga actually means that part of the river in the center where it flows freely and easily without obstructions. It's not so much a path, but it is a set of eight practices that unfold dependent on each other and informing each other. Gil Fransdale says that there are two ways to understand this fourth noble truth of the Eightfold Way. The first is aspirational, that is, as a guide for practitioners that leads to awakening. The second is as a description of those who have become enlightened. The Buddha did not claim to have created this path or way or method. Instead, he gave this metaphor. Suppose, monks, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and would see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people of the past with parks, groves, ponds, and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister, sire, I know that, while know that while wandering through the forest, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people of the past. I followed it and saw an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds, and ramparts, a delightful place. <clears throat> Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or the royal minister would renovate the city, and sometime later, that city would become successful and prosperous, well-populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road traveled by the perfectly enlightened ones of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path, that is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I followed that path, and by doing so, I have directly known aging and death, its origin, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation. I have directly known birth, existence, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the six sense bases, name and form, consciousness, volitional formations, their origin, their cessation, and the way leading to their cessation. So let's consider this eightfold path very briefly as our time is short this morning. And a person could really spend a lifetime just exploring these factors or practices. We begin with right view. But first, a reminder about the word sama, 
which is translated most often as right, as in right view. Sama also carries the meanings of being united, gathered together, being unified, complete, harmonious, whole. And Gill likes to translate it as complete, as in complete view. Sometimes it is recast as wise view. However, I've discussed this with Trouty, our resident Sanskrit scholar, and she insists that the Buddha definitely meant right versus wrong. There are wrong views. Nihilism is a wrong view. Essentialism is a wrong view. For the Buddha, this sense of right was not a moral issue or a philosophical one, but a pragmatic conclusion. Wrong views do not lead to liberation or the relief of suffering. They are wrong in the same sense that heading south from here to go to Chicago is going the wrong way. So the right view is the one that leads where we want to go, to the cessation of the painfulness or stress of our lived experience. Right view is the view that is complete, free of errors, not based on I, me, or mine. In the Buddha's terms, here's this uh, explanation of how the Buddha described right view. At Savati, then the venerable Kachanagata approached the Blessed One and pay, paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? This world, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. This world, Kachana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. But this one with right view does not become engaged and cling through that engagement and clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, underlying tendency. He does not take a stand about myself. He has no perplexity or doubt about that what arises is only suffering arises. What ceases is only suffering ceasing. His knowledge about this is independent of others. It is in this way, Kachana, that there is right view. All exists, Kachana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dharma by the middle, with ignorance as condition, consciousness. So he lists the twelvefold chain of dependent arising. He says, such is the origin of the whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, cessation of consciousness, and so on, such is the cessation of the whole mass of suffering. So I want to say a little bit about this most important first dimension of the Eightfold Path. 
Without right view, there's no beneficial way forward. In fact, a great deal of harm has been done in the world by people who have wonderful intentions because they lacked right view. We're seeing this today. Millions of people around the world witnessed the horrific murder of George Floyd in broad daylight at the hands of the police. Suddenly, millions of well-intentioned people discovered that they lacked the right view of the institutions that they inhabit, institutions they long assumed had been set up to protect and serve all citizens. As they voiced their protests, they too were treated cruelly and violently, and this was a great shock. So there's now a big scramble to gain a clearer view of racism in our society by those very same people with good intentions who lacked this view. And I also want to say that we are always thinking, speaking, and acting from a limited view. Our task in this fourth noble truth is to develop the path to cultivate these practices. Right view is neither an absolutist view, this is the one and only truth, or a relativistic view, everybody's opinion is as good as anybody else's. My students would often espouse this view, but I always pointed out to them that I prefer the pilot to decide when to put the flaps down and not some random passenger. It's not even the democratic view of going with the majority opinion. Again, we don't want the passengers voting on when the flaps should go down. Right view is the view from wisdom, and as such it cannot be defined. That does not mean it cannot be cultivated. For the Buddha, that entails a deep understanding of dependent origination, the way that everything is subject to causes and conditions which mutually influence each other. Through right view, we see the nature of existence as characterized by the three marks of anicca, all is constantly changing, dukkha, all existence is subject to pain and stress, and anatman, nothing whatsoever exists independent or separate. There's no separate self. Seeing these three marks of existence clearly, there's nothing to grasp onto, nothing to claim as I, me, or mine. Well, what does this mean? After all, you have a car, you have a chair, you have a self, right? Don't be so sure. Look more closely. Your view may not be so clear about that. So right view quite leads quite naturally to right intention, the second practice of the Eightfold Path. When we see clearly, our intention accords with the intentions with life. Intentions set the course for our thoughts, words, and actions. They have consequences, and they can either lead to reducing suffering or increasing it for ourselves and for others. This is where the practice of the Brahma-viharas comes in. Practicing radiating kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity cultivates right intention in a spacious field of mindful care. From that place, we express ourselves in right speech, that is, according to the Buddha's guidelines for right speech. To speak at the appropriate time, to speak honestly, to speak politely, to speak what is beneficial, and to speak with goodwill. So, I'll repeat those. 
to speak at the right time, at the appropriate time, to speak honestly, to speak politely, to speak what is beneficial, to speak with goodwill. So this is a useful guide, not only in planning to speak, but as a way of assessing what we have said afterwards. If we're not sure, we might seek feedback from others as we continue to cultivate this practice. From right speech, we move on to right action. That is, avoiding doing harm and instead serving life. There are three specific things to avoid in right action. Killing living beings, taking what has not been freely given, and engaging in sexual misconduct. Our actions then give protection and freedom to others and peace of mind for ourselves. Gill writes, living without intentionally harming any living being is also a source of happiness called the bliss of blamelessness. This is an ease in the mind from being free of any reason to be reproached, either by oneself or by others. The absence of remorse, fear, and criticism is something to appreciate. It is a joy that can grow from reflection on a mind that has a clear conscience. A mind with a clear conscience is conducive for meditation practice. So the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas strengthens our capacity for right action, going beyond non-harmony to active care. In turn, right livelihood follows right action. Often we hear that right, that right livelihood is about the work we do in the world, our jobs or our careers. And certainly that's an important part of right livelihood. But actually it is about how we make a life, not just a living, how we run a household, how we cultivate our friendships, how we relate to our families, our neighborhood, our country. And in each of these areas, we look closely to ensure that as much as we are able to, we avoid harming and relieve suffering. Traditionally, the Buddha proscribed certain kinds of work, trafficking in slaves, meat, intoxicants, and weapons, all sources of harm. We consider whether our activities reflect our values and our vow. This is not an exercise in self-blame or criticism for failing to meet some ideal we've concocted. Rather, it's an investigation and liberation. Cultivating right livelihood so that our lives consistently reflect our deepest values is a source of joy and contentment. It frees us from compulsion and regret so that at the end of our lives, we can look back with joy on a life well lived. Such a life has an impact on others and on the world. Through right livelihood, we are always expressing the vast Buddha heart and mind right here and right now. It is a gift, a love letter to the world. Certainly cultivating this practice on the Eightfold Path depends on an ethical foundation. Our precepts are also a gift to ourselves and to others. Living an ethical life instills trust in others and freedom from harm and oppression. Just as importantly, it gives us ease and joy as we turn toward our daily activities in the service of our vow. 
to engage in our life's activities from the divine abodes of kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity is blissful. And best of all, we can live this way right now and for all time. Of course, right view is necessary. Right speech and right action are also factors. We practice paying attention in meditation and in the process gain clarity and deepen our wisdom. Our focus then naturally turns inward as we consider the next practice we cultivate, right effort, which concerns our mental actions, our thoughts, impulses, feelings, and states that arise within us and persist depending on our intentions and reactions. Further, only by recognizing whether or not these are helpful and beneficial can we usefully choose which thoughts, impulses, feelings, or states to cultivate and which not to, and where to put our efforts. This discernment is the product of our meditation practice and our skillfulness. So, Gill clarifies the concept of skillfulness, which is a foundational concept in Buddhism, the idea of skillful means. He writes, the Buddhist tradition often refers to activities that cause harm as unskillful and those that are beneficial as skillful. The use of these terms highlights the idea that we can choose to think, speak, and act in ways that are beneficial. Using the words skillful and unskillful avoids the moralistic judgments that good and bad often imply and the absoluteness of right and wrong. Skillfulness suggests helpfulness. Things that are unskillful are simply not helpful. When one is walking the Eightfold Path, skillful activities are those that help move closer to peace and freedom. Those that are unskillful take us in the other direction, towards suffering and servitude. So he notes that right effort involves four different ways we can apply ourselves. When it comes to our inner thoughts, feelings, and states, we can, one, prevent, two, abandon, three, arouse, or four, maintain these inner experiences. We can prevent them, we can abandon them, we can arouse them, or we can maintain them. In the practice of right effort, we utilize these four efforts to safeguard and develop the quality of our mind and heart. The quality of our inner life is our most important asset and it deserves our utmost care. So our practice is to discover how we might prevent unwholesome, unproductive, or unskillful thoughts, impulses, feelings, and states. How we might abandon them once they arise. How to arouse wholesome, useful, and skillful thoughts, impulses, feelings, and states. And how we might maintain them once they appear. This is a choice we make moment by moment. As we have discovered, the practice of the Brahma Viharas is the method par excellence in support of our inner well-being. Sometimes we may find ourselves so caught in negative or unhealthy mind states, though, that we need a bit of outside support through therapy or working with a teacher or even a spiritual friend. It can be difficult to see where you're caught or to extricate yourself when you're stuck in an unwholesome pattern of thoughts, impulses, or feelings. 
That is why we have each other. The seventh factor of the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness as we continue our journey inward. <clears throat> the term the Buddha used for this is sati, which is translated as mindfulness in most texts. The problem with the term mindfulness is that it has become associated with something you do, being mindful. But actually, it refers to a quality of mind that is bright, clear, spacious, aware, and fully comprehending. It is accompanied by energy and willingness to be fully present and a joyful focus on our spiritual path. Gill points out that clear comprehension lies at the center of mindfulness practice. Whereas mindfulness allows us to be aware, clear comprehension understands whatever it is we are aware of. The practice of mindfulness so popular in the culture now has been extracted from this eightfold path and taught as a technique, unfortunately, isolated from the necessary supporting factors of the rest of the path, from the ethical foundations of Buddhism and the precepts, and most importantly, without teaching the foundational importance of Sangha or community. We know of right mindfulness through our recent study of the Satipatthana Sutta and Anapanasati Sutta, where the Buddha sets out the four ways of establishing mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tones, mindfulness of mental states, and mindfulness of mental processes. The Buddha describes the actual meditation practices using each of these steps to deepen our awareness and clarity of mind. As Gill notes, through these practices, we cultivate the wisdom to see and comprehend what our minds do to cause suffering and what we can do to overcome this suffering. We learn to recognize the mental processes that need to be let go of so we can realize a peaceful heart. The eighth factor of the Eightfold Path is right concentration. And I can see we're going to run just a couple of minutes long, so I hope that's okay with folks. And um, uh, maybe we won't uh, um, have much time to chat at the end. <clears throat> so the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path is right concentration. This is the cultivation of that mind described by the Buddha as concentrated, bright, undefiled, steady, wieldy unified, and clear. I think we can all probably agree this is a very desirable quality of mind. <clears throat> it enables our direct access to our inherent wisdom and compassion, our skillful means, and our relational care. So we want to cultivate this unified, clear, wise, and compassionate mind, but what do we need to do? Gill points out that right concentration prepares the mind for deep understanding and profound letting go. This occurs when the mind is ready, soft, free from hindrances, joyful, and bright. Recognizing the expansive and unhindered quality of mind is the task of the third foundation of mindfulness. Using this concentrated mind for wisdom is the task of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Obviously, this quality cannot be cultivated by straining, by striving for a goal, which is only another form of grasping. Rather, the clue is this deep letting go. Without the other seven factors of the path, 
and this skillful inward journey, we might misunderstand this letting go. It's not dropping into sloth and torpor and carelessness, as we sometimes mean when we say she is really letting herself go. It's not indulging our cravings and conditioning, as in when we say to ourselves, I'm, I'm just going to let myself have another cupcake. I've had a hard day. We need the seven earlier practices of the Eightfold Path to recognize what this letting go really means. <clears throat> and we need to be strengthened by those earlier practices to be able to release the underlying anxiety, worry, and tension we carry always, even below our general awareness. This is the cultivation of readiness, unhindered by expectation. What does that look like? Gill describes it this way. With right concentration, the mind becomes unified as it shifts from being scattered, disorganized, and agitated, or I might add, dull and lethargic, to becoming calm and centered. When agitated, the mind easily jumps between bodily sensations, emotions, moods, thoughts, daydreams, desires, and external events, and our reactions to what we are experiencing. When concentrated, the mind settles down and stays centered and undistracted. As we relax into a focused attention, there is a growing experience of unification, of feeling whole with all our faculties working in harmony. In this way, we find ourselves abiding in kindness, in compassion, in empathetic joy, in equanimity, because that is our natural home. So that's probably enough or too much for one day, and I apologize for going long. But if you're interested in exploring this Eightfold Path further, I highly recommend Gil Fronsdale's book, Steps to Liberation, which offers brief chapters on each step, as well as some practices you can experiment with. So now we'll do service, and I'll get set up here. <clears throat>